Here we go. Hello, and welcome to the JuntoCast, a podcast presented by the bloggers at earlyamericanists.com. I'm Ken Owen, an assistant professor of colonial and revolutionary America at the University of Illinois at Springfield. Today on the podcast, we're going to be discussing an Englishman who came to America and had a notable career as polemicist and rabble-rouser, especially on account of his very public disagreements with men such as John Adams and George Washington. No, we're not talking about me, but rather Thomas Paine, author of Common Sense, The Rights of Man, and The Age of Reason. We'll be assessing his transatlantic radicalism and the enduring appeal of his writings. And to aid me in that discussion, I'm joined by three other Junto bloggers. Michael Hattam is a PhD student and teaching fellow at Yale University, and, I believe, is fearful of travelling to France on account of possible imprisonment. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Hello, Ken. And I'm also joined by Roy Rogers, a PhD candidate at the Cooney Graduate Centre and graduate teaching fellow at Lehman College. There's apparently no truth to the rumour that he used to supplement his teaching income by corset making. But it's good to have you here, Roy. Howdy, Ken. And finally, we're joined by Ben Park, a PhD student in early American political culture at Cambridge University, who has master's degrees from Cambridge and Edinburgh and a bachelor's degree from BYU. He's rumoured to have turned to academia after a failed career as a customs official. Thanks a lot for joining us, Ben. Glad to be here. To begin our discussion of pain, Michael is going to present us with a brief biography. Thanks, Ken. Thomas Paine was born in Thetford, England in 1736, and as a young man, he had a number of jobs, including uh, stints as a privateer, a school teacher, and a tobacco shop owner. And in the early 1770s, he was fired from a position as an excise officer or tax collector. After narrowly avoiding debtor's prison, Paine moved to London, where he was fortunate enough to be introduced to Benjamin Franklin. Franklin saw something in Paine and suggested he try his luck in the colonies. And so in October of 1774, Armed only with a letter of introduction from Franklin, Payne set sail for the colonies. Once there, he secured himself a job as the editor of the Pennsylvania Magazine, and he became increasingly involved in the resistance movement. And in January of 1776, published his most famous work, Common Sense, in which he laid out the case for separation from Great Britain. In the 1790s, Payne found himself in France, where he was made an honorary citizen and participated in the French Revolution. These experiences provided the basis for his book, The Rights of Man. Power struggles within the revolution led to Paine's imprisonment and his just narrowly avoiding the guillotine. After being released, he published his last major work, The Age of Reason, challenging organized religion. In his later years, he returned to a less than welcoming United States and died in 1809. Ten years later, an English radical, William Cobbett, dug up Paine's body and had it brought back to England for a ceremonial burial, but unable to generate enough interest, the bones simply languished among his personal effects. Over time, the bones became misplaced, and to this day, no one knows what happened to the bones of Thomas Paine. Thanks a lot for that introduction, Michael. Clearly, Paine's importance from a narrow view of early American history comes in the writing of the pamphlet Common Sense, which has been seen as playing a very important role in the politics of 1776 and in the drive 
that the American colonies undertook in 1776 to move from resistance to Britain to the treasonous move to declare independence from Britain. And common sense has been seen as central to this story, uh, not least because of Paine's own boosterism on his own behalf, talking about the wide circulation of the pamphlets. So this wasn't just a pamphlet that influenced politics in Philadelphia or Pennsylvania, but rather something that provided a common experience and a common language through which Americans could support independence and feel wholeheartedly behind a common cause by the time that independence is declared in July 1776. And so common sense appears at this moment and is often seen as this switch where a sceptical anti-British public switches into an enthusiastic American public that is prepared not just to resist imperial governments, but to go it alone themselves. Now, I realise that this is the standard mythology, and a lot of academic writing has focused on this as mythology. And Michael, I know that you had some response to clarify or maybe complicate the narrative or the role that common sense played in the move to independence. Right. Thanks, Ken. I think that the uh, mythology about common sense and, and Thomas Paine as the sort of great proselytizer for independence has actually had a, an obscuring effect on how we understand the ways that common Americans came to embrace independence. I think it has served to, to simplify what surely was a more complex process when there should be a more complex assessment or reading of public opinion by the end of 1775. I think that in order for this mythology to work, this sort of standard narrative, you, you really have to start with a public that's not just indecisive, but largely not ready for independence as late as uh, January of 1776, which really doesn't jibe with what we know from Pauline Mayer's American scripture, where towns throughout the colonies are already engaged in debating independence and, and drawing up their own uh, declarations of independence, as it were. I think that uh, some historians do have seemed to, to buy wholesale the, these sort of contemporary pronouncements about the pamphlet's importance. And then on the other hand, you know, we'll get into some of the the, the more forceful uh, critiques of that mythology. But I think that there there is a, a sort of middle road that retains an importance for common sense, particularly in the colonial urban centers, but doesn't attribute this, the origins of radical agency to it. And I think it leaves wide open the question of how uh, ideas about independence developed outside the urban centers. And so what I'm saying is that I don't think that the, the broad idea of common sense was unique to pain. I mean, rather, the voicing of it was. But if that's the case, you have to wonder if common sense's legacy really should lie in a sort of persuasion narrative. And if that's not the case, then for me, the most important part of common sense really becomes his uh, ruminations of the actual forms of a potential Republican government. And if you consider that Adams' thoughts on government wasn't written until the spring of 76, I think that it's that that was really unique in the colonial public sphere in the very first months of 1776. Yes, if I can pick up on that, I think that one of the problems of using common sense as almost this, this switch in public opinion is that it foreshortens the debate on independence to really a six-month 
seven or eight month period when, as you say, a lot of this crucial work in nation building has been done previously. And we picked up on this in the previous podcast on the Continental Congress, the role of local committees, the role of local movements in pushing towards independence. And that really does tap into some sort of American sentiment. It's less well defined than it is in common sense. But to me, it's certainly there. And that foreshortening misrepresents a lot of the radicalism and the important work that's being done. And so to build on that, I completely endorse the point that you make about the idea of an American government or thoughts on a Republican government being the most important thing there. I think for two reasons. One, as you say, it's the first really serious consideration of what an American government might look like. And I think also, although this is just the Pennsylvanian radical in me talking, it shifts the debate about what a national government might look like in a much more radical direction than it might have been if it had been Benjamin Rush or John Adams or some other more elite figure who was setting the tone of that debate. Michael and I have still presented quite a nationalist story uh, in responding to the standard mythology that although we're looking not so much as common sense as a catalyst of independence, we're still seeing this as emblematic of something approaching a unitary American identity in 1776. And there are other historians that have taken an even more critical approach of the standard mythology, most notably uh, Trish Lochran in her book, The Republic in Print, where she takes quite a long time to deconstruct the mythology of common sense. Ben, I know you had a few thoughts on Lochran's work. Yes, the key arguments in Trish Lochran's chapter on Thomas Paine's common sense attempt to deconstruct the the myth of wide dissemination and unified national identity in two ways. First, through a materialistic look at print culture, and second, through the ideological underpinnings of nationalism itself. She's basically arguing that though Paine incorporated ideas of an emergent nationalism in early America, or I would argue a very Pennsylvanian view of emergent nationalism in 1775, But since then, our nationalist views and, historically speaking, our uh, nationalist historiographical frameworks have then used that myth of Thomas Paine to bolster um, our ideas. So first, the materialist critique. She argues that there, instead of one print culture that common sense uh, filled that each region or each colony, each state had its own dissemination and public sphere, and it was hard to uh, transgress those boundaries. For instance, we we often speak about that common sense was printed in every colony throughout the continent and, and was known to every citizen, when in fact it was only reprinted in 13 towns across six of the 13 colonies, meaning that instead of being this miraculous break from a 
previously segregated print culture, it was actually a very predetermined and systematic expression of what we would expect from a printed work around the time of 1776. Secondly, the idea that common sense either built upon or then created a unified nationalist framework is equally problematic. Now, now I quote from Trish Loughran in the book, The Republican Print, Print Culture in the Age of U.S. Nation Building, 1777 through 1870, where she says this, quote, The truth is that common sense in its radical and original articulation of the North American continent as a distinct and newly imaginable geographic subject could only have been written by an outsider uninitiated and unassimilated to the fierce local attachments of late 18th century provincial politics, close quote. So what she's meaning by that is the only reason that Paine could imagine a unified nationalist image to write in common sense is that he was only exposed to a very limited and parochial uh, context and was not aware of how different each colony was. And so that's why I said earlier that he presented a very Pennsylvanian sense of nationalism. Because those in New England or those in the South or even those up in New York did not share the same sense of what an American nation would be or what the American colony should do. So what is this is basically saying is that the unified image that we find in common sense is just like the dissemination of common self itself is a myth and uh, is, is worthy of reconsidering from our framework today. I think that Lochran's work is definitely important for that analysis of print culture, Ben. And I think showing that this unitary dissemination of the ideas is can certainly not be attributed to common sense is really valuable. But at the same time, I wonder if the mythology of common sense does speak to a broader truth, which is that a lot of the ideas within common sense have been circulating in a lot of different forms prior to January 1776. And so common sense becomes the avatar for that movement. To come at it from maybe the other side, um, and I realise there might be a bit of a dichotomy in the critique that I'm offering here, but to come at it from the other side, Maybe it does represent a very Pennsylvanian view on an emergent nationalism. But the idea of the American colonies as a single unit is not just an English idea. This is something that has a heritage throughout the imperial crisis, and indeed in some ways stretching back to the Albany Congress in the Seven Years' War. And James Otis deals with this, Patrick Henry deals with this, Thomas Jefferson deals with this in their speeches and their writings. But if we are going to look at this as a much more fragmentary nation state, and I know that Lochran uses the term translocal to describe the impact of common sense rather than something that's national. But if we are looking at something that's fundamentally based on locality, in some ways that makes common sense even more important because it's designed to shift the argument, especially amongst moderates and elites in Philadelphia who are currently controlling the levers of power to block independence. So if we're looking at this from a local perspective, 
and we're going to emphasize the divergent views on independence, in some ways that makes common sense even more important in terms of the standard mythology rather than less important. Right. I would just build on that by saying, you know, that that the argument sort of it, it shows this, the, the overly central focus on common sense, because I mean, there's a it, there seems to be an implicit assumption that if you eliminate common sense from the, the narrative, if you if you eliminate its importance, that that automatically then excludes the possibility of uh, of a sense of how widespread notions toward independence were. Well, there's a way, I think, to sort of combine some of the really interesting critiques that Lofman offers and reconcile it with the pre-existing importance of common sense that we sort of have been passed down for 200 plus years. And I think it's by focusing on something Michael said, which is the persuasive quality of common sense. And I think that what's one of the most interesting things about particularly the first half about common sense is it engages in tricking the reader into believing that there is an incipient nationalism that doesn't exist on the ground, and the way in which they act within their individual resistance movements in Virginia or New York and Pennsylvania, they may not actually follow through on, but allows them to make a step towards imagining a proto-national culture and a proto-national critique of, of Britain that may not actually exist, but they can briefly imagine it, and, will, and, and begins the process that's going to lead to it actually beginning to truly emerge in that summer. And I think I get this actually from Lochran's own book, because it's, it's one of the arguments that she makes about the Federalist Papers do a trick like that. And I think that's one of the important, these sort of key texts that have been, you know, been passed down for hundreds of years that historians, myself included, like to sort of put pins into and burst their bubbles, I think what's important isn't so much that they represent reality, but they represent an imaginary sense of Americanism or Americanness that needs to develop for a whole lot of other political events and the political culture to develop the way it did. Yes, and the fact that Paine taps into that transient moment in 1776 and intervenes in the way he does is actually a very interesting counterpoint for Paine's subsequent career, especially in American politics, because he never quite manages to sum up any sense of American identity again. He comes close in the crisis papers, but after that he becomes this increasingly controversial figure, particularly in Pennsylvanian politics. There are all sorts of disputes that Paine manages to inveigle his way into both through print and through personal presence in terms of the price fixing committees in 1779. And then there's this incredible switch that he makes from his somewhat egalitarian radicalism in the 1770s to becoming a cheerleader for Robert Morris and the Bank of North America by the 1780s. Um, that transformation is something that Eric Foner picks up on in his book, Tom Paine and Revolutionary America. And the controversy that Paine is able to engender, the fact that he's still this very sharp lightning rod in the 1780s, is something that I hope we're able to pick up on later when we think about Paine's legacy as one of the founding fathers. And we see that in a, a lot of recent work that's paid attention to pain as well. You know, this difficulty, he leaves America. 
he doesn't become a political leader in the way that Jefferson does. That's the key tension in the edited collection of essays by Simon Newman and Peter Onuf comparing Paine and Jefferson that came out within the last couple of years. And that transatlantic radicalism is an important part of a number of works, including Sophia Rosenfeld's Common Sense, A Political History, and then other books that have examined the links between American and French political culture extending into the 1790s, such as Rachel Hope Cleave's book, The Reign of Terror in America, and Seth Kotler's book, Tom Paine's America, The Rise and Fall of Transatlantic Radicalism in the Early Republic. So there's been a lot of interest in Paine and this transatlantic revolutionary culture, but Paine, of course, is a much more problematic figure in this than he is as the cheerleader for independence in 1776. Uh, ben, I know that you've written quite a lot on this. I mean, what are your thoughts on this recent treatment of Paine. Right. So when Tom Paine was in the midst of being embroiled in the French Revolution and in prison, he wrote the only other work that would come close to its sales numbers in America as common sense, which was The Age of Reason, written in two volumes, one while he was in uh, prison and one after. And these two volumes of The Age of Reason were an attack on organized religion and spent most of its time on Christianity and the Old Testament. Volume 2 would then deal, or Volume 3, I believe, dealt with the New Testament, but that was decades later. And in this book, he argued that he'd that it was a natural progression in his political move to free uh, humankind from the shackles of tyranny. He freed Americans from the British crown. He then worked to free the British but failed and then went to the French Revolution to free them from despotism. And now he aims to free civilization from the tyranny of organized religion. He expected it to be a an influential text in America, just as he thought common sense was. Uh, but he was wrong in that for obvious reasons. And there was a flourish of responses to his age of reason. In fact, in my master's thesis, where I worked on this topic, I counted at least 130 pamphlets that were published in response to Thomas Paine's uh, controversial text. These responses came from many different quarters, they came from many different religious viewpoints, and what is one thing that is, un that is uh, overlooked is the many divergences within these tracks, but there are broad agreements. And I think the main agreement amongst many of these writers is that the American society, if not the American government, was in some way connected to the Christian tradition, and in many ways was the fulfillment of the Christian tradition. And the fact that Thomas Paine rejected that connection meant that he went from being the archetype of an American identity to the antitype of an American identity, and his image fell so drastically that when he returned to America, only a little over a decade after he was, after he left, or a decade and a half after he left, 
He found no fanfare. He found no support. But instead, there's an account of him coming up on shore. All the uh, homes would not give him a bed. And when he finally found a place to stay at, people would come by and visit what they called the famous animal Thomas Paine. And his image uh, didn't recover for, for quite some time after that. I want to build on what Ben just said. And because I think one of the most important things about the sort of return of Tom Paine that we've seen in, say, the last five years is sort of also the return of the study of deism as an important theme in uh, the religious culture of the early republic, embodied really in books like um, Amanda Porterfield's Conceived in Doubt, which centers religious doubt as one of the key cultural and personal experiences uh, of the early Republic up through into the Jacksonian period. And if you're going to bring deism back into the story, particularly if you want, you have to find popular deism, which has always been one of the trickier things in the world to find in the United States. And Payne is a useful figure in that way because as Ben said, there's a huge reaction to Payne's writings and, but there's also a huge circulation of Paine's uh, deist, anti-establishmentarian writings in the Age of Reason. If you look at books like Francois Furstenberg's uh, In the Name of the Father, and he looks at figures like Weems and other um, sort of itinerant people who are both itinerants in a religious sense, but also to itinerant peddlers of books, uh, they are selling Paine's writings to... Pop- people in rural areas throughout the United States, even in, even in the Upper South and in places like Maryland and Virginia. So Payne is a central touchstone to the reemergence of deism as a key theme uh, of American religious culture. And the return of deism, I think, sort of brings back in to uh, sort of the history of American three thought, the transatlantic uh, category, because it allows... It shows that American deism isn't just even, even isn't just the dog that didn't bite. It, it had no sort of purpose, and it isn't just limited to Ethan Allen and a few isolated cases. So Paine sort of brings American uh, free thought into a transatlantic context, which allows people to make certain moves in intellectual history uh, that has sort of been out of fashion for a couple of decades. So I wanted to change tack a little bit, which is to think about the demise of Payne's image, which is an important theme of a lot of the works that we've been talking about. And in some ways, how Payne becomes the cautionary tale for what happens if you let revolutionary fervour take over too much. Because one of the things I was thinking about when looking at Payne's career is how he sort of becomes a man in search of a revolution that even though he supports the Constitution, he's setting off for England as he's writing about that. He then wants to precipitate change in England, doesn't really succeed there, tries to inveigle himself in France, ends up in prison and very bitter towards his supposed American friends that seem to give no time at all to his plight in incarceration. But it's also got me thinking about the comparison with other figures, particularly with Jefferson in the light of that Newman and Onuf collected volume of essays, because in some ways Jefferson could have been a cautionary tale as well. John Adams could have been a cautionary tale as well. 
I mean, what would we remember John Adams for if it wasn't for the fact that he ended up becoming president? He doesn't really contribute to, or he's always in someone else's shadow before he ends up becoming president. He's in Samuel's shadow in the revolutionary fervor in Boston. He's in Jefferson's shadow for independence. And then he's out of the game by being a diplomat in London. Something similar for Jefferson. He has his shining moment in 1776, but he then is a failure as governor of Virginia. He enjoys being a diplomat, but then gets frozen out as secretary of state in the Washington administration as well. But the fact that they remain around in American political culture gives them a moment of redemption. And Payne doesn't have that. Payne doesn't have any sense of revolutionary fulfilment because he's casting about looking for this revolution. And in some ways, it's a cautionary tale about the danger of taking Republican ideology too far. As one example of that, I like to look at how not only did Thomas Paine challenge the Christian God in the Bible, but he also had the nerve to challenge the American God in George Washington. And I think his pamphlet in response to moves that he felt George Washington was in the wrong, primarily his not supporting the French Revolution, demonstrated that he didn't really have the mind for political work. He didn't think about the repercussions of such things. He was constantly the fire plug. And because eventually a fire plug is going to burn out, he didn't have the long lasting vision of how to retain his influence. Right. And that's reminiscent of John Adams' famous quote about uh, Payne when he said that he's much better at tearing things down than building them up. And in, you know, when we're playing this sort of founders bingo, uh, you know, of which founders are remembered and which ones aren't, I mean, Payne, like in, to a lesser extent, Hamilton, suffers from having the right slash wrong enemies in the sense that his ideology and his politic, where he ended up politically when he returned to the United States, angered both proto-federalists and proto-republicans so that he had sort of no place to fit easily into the emerging American political culture of the 1790s and uh, the early 19th century. I, th I think there's a lot of truth to what you say there, Roy, although this is one of the reasons that I love Payne so much. I mean, that letter to George Washington, I think is fantastic, not just on account of perhaps personal disdain for some of the more outlandish statements made in favour of George Washington's character, but for just how useful it is as a teaching tool. You know, in the same way that common sense sums up so much of what we want to talk about in independence in one text, so the letter to Washington encapsulates better than anything else how Washington becomes a partisan figure, how the partisan divides in 1790s America work. And yes, it's a problem if we're looking at this from a biographical perspective, but if we're looking at Payne as avatar of a larger culture, as I think we were in our consideration of common sense, thinking of Payne and how he fits within particularly the Republican pantheon of founders, um, the Jeffersonian persuasion, is something that's very useful in thinking about the multifaceted way in which American politics develops. But of course, when we think of Tom Paine, we don't just think of him as part of a subset of Republican founders in the 1790s. We're talking about him today in the same way that we might 
in future podcasts talk about other figures like Washington, like Jefferson or Adams or Franklin or Hamilton. And yet when we think about the pantheon of founders, Payne is very much the unloved stepchild of the the founding fathers. He's mentioned sometimes in the same breath, but with nothing like the reverence or the affection of other founders. Michael, how would you characterize that relationship to other founders? Right. Well, I, I just think that in general, you know, Americans have a very complicated relationship with pain. I mean, he's celebrated for common sense pretty universally, but, but the rest of his legacy is, is quite uh, divisive. Right. His, as, as we've heard, you know, his support for the French Revolution is a complicating factor. Obviously, his attacks on organized religion and especially the Bible made him anathema to many Americans in the early 19th century. And I think that to, to a significant extent that continues today with uh, many contemporary evangelicals uh, in the early 20th century. Teddy Roosevelt once referred to him as that filthy little atheist. During the bicentennial, Payne was uh, effectively ignored. And even before that, when the Founders' Papers projects were being established in the the 1950s and uh, 1960s, Payne was not included in those. And so, I mean, recently, as we've heard today, historians have returned to Payne, even if to diminish his importance, uh, which in some sense only reaffirms it. But there have also recently been a few popular works, uh, both by liberal and conservative political essayists or commentators that try to incorporate him into the sort of uh, contemporary political culture, political debates. And I think it's indicative of the fact that that Payne's legacy amongst the the general population has remained conflicted, and and therefore his legacy uh, um, among the general public regarding the American Revolution really remains muted and, and often underplayed. There are some people who have picked him up and picked him up with reckless abandon, And oddly enough, these people are found both on the right and the left. For instance, there has been a large upswing of libertarian political figures who have uh, looked to or called upon Thomas Paine. Uh, In a Washington Times op-ed last year, um, one libertarian thinker said that, quote, proceeding from the central tenet of non-aggression, libertarianism sees government the same way Thomas Paine did. Uh, Similarly, you have Glenn Beck, who, when he wrote one of his uh, earliest big political books, he titled it, common sense and he included as part of the publication a complete reprint of thomas paine's famous work um other people from newt gingrich to uh rick santorum have also invoked thomas paine often in a sense that tries to emphasize the individual personal liberty and uh personal mobility which is actually a a tragic irony in the sense to where that's taking a lot of Paine's ideas out of context. And it especially demonstrates the distance between Paine's day and ours and how we view the relationship between government and society. Paine was able to present some very individualistic or popular views when it comes to politics because he believed in a society that was much more egalitarian than what we think of today in what is probably his most sophisticated and thought out and systematic 
pamphlet, Agrarian Justice, he wrote that, quote, personal property is the effect of society, and it is as impossible for an individual to acquire personal property without the aid of society as it is for him to make the land originally. In fact, Payne went on to argue that, quote, all accumulation thereof of private property beyond what a man's own hands produce or require is derived to him by living in a society, and he owes on every principle of justice, of gratitude, and of civilization a part of that accumulation back again to society from whence the whole came. Now, I'm not arguing that Thomas Paine was Elizabeth Warren. But I am trying to argue that there is a broader societal context for Paine's political views that sometimes our modern discourse uh, loses when we take a lot of his comments out of context today. And I think implicit in what you're saying there is it's bizarre that the libertarian or the libertarian right pick up on Paine when given some of those radical views that he espouses, he's not picked up on quite so much by the left. Indeed, I think it's quite telling that the sort of popular writing, or the, perhaps the most notable popular writing about pain, was by Christopher Hitchens, um, who clearly comes out of a left-wing tradition, but by the time he was writing about pain, was certainly not within the mainstream of the left. And I think if we're looking at 20th century problems, there are much more recent and much more convenient revolutionary heroes for the left to look towards in terms of developing a popular mythology around their ideology. And they don't really have to look to the American Revolution for that tradition. And therefore, someone like Paine, who, as we talked about earlier, never really gets involved in political work, never really establishes himself as the functional revolutionary. He's never going to really tie himself to political movements that want to celebrate the American Revolution. And if you want to be critical of the aftermath of the American Revolution, there are much more recent figures, in some ways much more iconic figures, to pick up on. And that's something that means that pain almost falls between a rock and a hard place in terms of historical legacy. I think that brings us to a natural finishing point for our discussion on Tom Paine. So I'd like to thank my fellow participants for joining me today. Thanks very much, Michael. Thank you, Ken. Thanks a lot, Roy. Thank you, Ken. And thank you to our very own transatlantic rad radical, Ben. Glad to be here. If you want to read more about the issues that we've discussed today, please visit earlyamericanists.com slash the-juntocast, where we'll be putting up links and references to the books and documents that we've mentioned today. And as ever, if you like what you've heard on the Junto podcast, you should also check out the Junto blog on our website, earlyamericanists.com. You can subscribe to our podcast in iTunes by searching for The Juntocast. And if you have comments about anything that you've heard today, please drop by our website and let us know. Alternatively, you can email us at thejuntoblog at gmail.com, or you can find us at Twitter using the handle at thejuntoblog. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Juntocast, 
and we hope you'll join us for the next episode. Bye.